Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Real. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed from wherever you live with the Newcastle Library app. Put borrowing at your fingertips. I invite you to close your eyes and imagine. Imagine that there are no buildings, no roads, no cars, just the trees, plants, animals and the very first storytellers of this land, the Awabakal and Waramai people. So I acknowledge them as the traditional custodians of this beautiful land in which we live. Welcome to Newcastle Libraries, your summer stories. Hello and welcome to the first of Newcastle Libraries 2022 Your Summer Stories series of podcasts, part of the Library Lounge online services. The podcast will run through December and January, featuring seven amazing Australian authors whose books are all available through the library in print, ebook and audio. I'm author Jay Ford and I'm talking to crime fiction writer Chris Hammer about his October release, The Tilt. Chris is the best-selling author of five crime novels and two non-fiction titles. His first crime fiction, Scrublands, was an instant success, hitting bestseller lists in Australia and overseas. It won the prestigious UK Crime Writers Association New Blood Dagger Award and was named the UK's Sunday Times Crime Novel of the Year. Scrublands and his fourth novel, Treasure and Dirt, topped the list of the most borrowed library books in 2021. Before writing fiction, he was a journalist for more than 30 years, working as a foreign correspondent for Dateline on SBS TV and a political reporter and editor for the Bulletin, The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. He has a degree in journalism from Charles Sturt University and a master's degree in international relations. Welcome, Chris. Hi there, Jay. So The Tilt has been described by reviewers as a stunning multi-layered novel mesmerising and skilfully plotted, and a heady brew of murder, rural history, old family secrets and modern-day terrorism. For me, it has all the hallmarks of a Chris Hammer novel, a complex story, gripping plot, a determined cop, and another atmospheric setting, this time on the Murray River near the town of Echuca. So the setting here is almost the opposite of the setting of your last book, Dirt and Treasure, which took place in a remote, dry, dusty opal mining town. Were you looking for somewhere completely different to write about? No, I don't think I was. I, I, I do like the regional settings. It seems to work. It works for the logic of a crime story. My books typically have more than one plot line, but if it's a small town, everyone knows everyone else, everyone knows everyone else's business, so that people know each other and perhaps are conspiring together, that's a natural conclusion of having a small number of people in a small area. But it's much more than that. It's the setting influences everything else in the book, from the characters to the language itself, to the way people behave, the way they speak, and the way I think about them. So you're right that the setting is very different than in Treasure and Dirt, but I don't think it was really a deliberate decision. So the tilt refers to a real geological fault in the Riverina that changed the course of the Murray and created the Barmah Forest. It plays such a large part in the telling of the story of life inside and outside the forest and the secrets that it keeps hidden and in some cases hidden for so long. Was the story shaped by the environment or the environment fitted nicely into a story you already had in mind? 
The uh, the setting definitely shape, helps shape the story, but it's fiction. So if there's something that doesn't quite fit, then I can just make it fit. I don't. I'm not compelled to be accurate in the way I was when I was a journalist. For example, this book is set in the Barma Millawa Forest. It's the world's largest river red gum forest, sitting on the Murray, as you said, just above Achuca. So it's a real location. But I fictionalised the towns around it. So the real-life town of Mathaura is called Tulong in the book, and it has some different characteristics. It has a big like car wrecking yard in the novel, and there's nothing like that in the, in the real-life town. So I do adapt and change according to whim. Um, but of all my books, this is probably the most accurate to a real-life situation, apart from my third book, Trust, which is set in Sydney. The forest itself plays such a large part. I mean, you you go to different parts of the towns as the reader, but the forest plays such a large part and it's so evocative. Tell us about how and why you set that there. Look, the forest is a great setting because it it captures the imagination and there's a great Western tradition of that going back to, you know, the Grimm brothers and Hans Christian Andersen, you know, Little Red Riding Hood, Hansel and Gretel, and also things like Lord of the Rings, whatever. So a forest is a great place to set a crime book because forests seem to be full of mystery. In this book, I kind of get three settings for the price of one, and that's because there's three separate timelines. There's one set in the Second World War, and the forest back then was one, uh, hit by, uh, ravaged by a terrible drought and was fire-prone, but it was very industrious. It was full of people working. There's a 1970s version of the forest and it's more of a forest in equilibrium, but because the story there is from a teenage girl, she's seeing it in a different way and it's where she escapes from the supervision of her parents and where the teenagers hang out and go skinny dipping and, you know, underage drink, etc. And then the contemporary story, the forest is a national park, but it's also flooded, which is part of the natural cycle of the forest. And right now, as we speak, it is absolutely flooded because of the floods that have been sweeping sort of southeastern Australia. And each of those forests then have a very different characteristic. So almost, almost by accident, it's a great setting, but now it's become an even better one because there's, you see three different aspects of it in the book. You wrote about that area more than 10 years ago in your non-fiction title, The River. Have you been wanting to write a story set there since then? I wouldn't say wanting, but it's been in the back of my mind. A couple of things happened. I, I visited it, the Barmer Forest. That's the Victorian side. The New South Wales is called Millawa, but it's the same forest, divided and nourished by the Murray River. I went there at the height of the millennial drought and the forest appeared to be dying. It needs water to survive. It can, I mean, it's drought resistant to a certain extent. It's an Australian forest after all. I met two people there who were important to this book. One was an environmentalist who described what the forest was like in its natural state. And most years, it's a forest nine months a year and a kind of all wetland three months of year of the year after the winter rains and the and the spring snowmelt, uh, it's full of water 
And so it's a bit like the Everglades, except with towering gum trees, a magical place. He described that to me, and I, I really struggled to imagine it, but that's what it's like now. And when I heard that the water was going out in the forest again, I made an effort to go down and see it. I was prevented by COVID to an extent, but I got down there last November, and so I had that contrast. But the other thing was, when I was researching that book, The River, back then during the millennial drought, I met an old man and he told me, his name was Tim Mannion, and he told me about how as an 11-year-old boy during a severe drought during the Second World War, he had the task of taking the family cattle off the farm and into the forest for a summer so they could feed and water from the Murray because there was no feed or water left on the farm and he camped in there with the cattle. And that that's the seed of the idea of one of the characters, Jimmy, who's a boy uh, under similar circumstances during the Second World War. So, so those things fed into this idea of a story. Why not dip your toes into your summer stories from Newcastle Libraries? Simply visit the Library Lounge on the Newcastle Libraries app or the website newcastle.nsw.gov.au slash library. That whole time period in the forest there in the 1940s was fascinating. It draws on the charcoal-making industry in the forest and the rough, lawless people that lived there and kids that just ran wild and never, ever went to school. Why did you want to write about that time? Was there something that fascinated you about those people? Because it sounds fascinating in the book. I, I think it went back to writing The River and, and meeting Tim Mannion and the stories, and then I researched it. I read some of the local histories. But it was also because in my previous book, uh, Treasure and Dirt, which is set in a very different location, but it's similar in that crimes occurring in the present day are the end result of events, you know, that have set, set a chain of events in motion over many years. And at the end of that book, the two characters, main characters, uh, police detectives Nell Buchanan and Ivan Lukic, learn what happened in the past but they're told about it. So that means a lot of exposition. It's hard to write in an exciting way. I think it worked well enough and people liked the book, but I thought I'll try something different. Instead of telling people what happened, I'll show them. And that was the idea of the three timelines, the Second World War one, the 1970s one, and the present day one. I really connected with the 1970s sections of the book. We're of a similar age and I kind of, you know, we. It really felt real to me, um, the clothes, the music, the culture that you talk about. It felt like memories to me, and I was wondering, were you drawing from your own memories, or did you have to do much research for that? I was drawing from my own memories. I'm not quite as old as the character Tessa in the book, but similar sort of era. The trouble was, was could I rely on my own memories? And so I did. it wasn't so much research as fact-checking. Were cassette players around? Were four-track tape players that people used to have in their cars had wine casks been invented you know i was checking out what tv shows were on at the time and what music what you know for example there's references in the book to david bowie but i had to go back and say was was bowie already the huge superstar in 1973 that you know i thought he was well it so happens he was already huge by 1973 so there was a sort of fun aspect for me because I was more or less revisiting my youth and fact-checking it. 
It was great. <laughs> the tilt is told mostly from a female perspective or females' perspectives. You've got Nell, the police officer, heading up the case, and Tessa, who's the teenage girl living in the area in the 70s. And, in fact, the only adult male point of view that you write is actually a written uh, police statement that continues throughout the story. Was that something that you wanted to do to challenge yourself with female voices more than the male voices or a conscious decision or just how the story unfolded? It wasn't a conscious decision to do a majority female voices, for sure. I was just looking for what characters would make sense to the story. And I wasn't really thinking of them as male or female. I was thinking what sort of characters are, what sort of personalities they are. And of course, gender is the important part of us, but it's, it's not what sets us apart because otherwise there'd only be, you know, two point something sort of people in the world and we're all different. But I was setting myself a challenge, I think, instead of doing what I'd done in Treasure and Dirt, which is have Ivan and Nell, the detectives, find out in the present day what had happened in the past. And that worked well in Treasure and Dirt and that book was received very well. So there wasn't like a fault in doing it like that. But I definitely wanted to try something new and... I think that's important for a writer. You don't want to change so radically that you portray the confidence of your readers, but you don't want to write the same book twice. You want to keep trying new things and expanding your skills. So, for example, my first book, Scrublands, was just all from the perspective of one person, Martin Skarsden. This is three people and in three different time timelines. I actually thought as I was reading the book that the story plays out quite differently to your others because you're focusing on that female point of view. There's no male sizing up, there's less simmering aggression, there's more mystery instead of confrontation. Were you trying for a different feel to that book, conscious of creating more mystery instead of that crime that sits on the surface of the story all the time? No, not as a conscious decision. And I can look at my book so... My third book, Trust, it's set in Sydney, in a city. That's more of a male book. There's more violence and action in it. It's a little bit more of a thriller than a mystery detective, only slightly. It's interesting when you get the feedback from readers how different readers prefer different books. That There's not one of my books that's an out-and-out favourite. People have uh, different books as their favourite, um, Scrublands is popular. This book, The Till, a lot of people like it, you know, most of all. So that's good. They're saying it's maybe the best one. Um, I will take that. <laughs> um, I, I can't tell myself I'm too close to it. Create your own summer stories with Newcastle Libraries through our incredible collections, e-learning resources and summer programs. Find out more at the Newcastle Libraries app or website. So like your other crime novels, like the Chris Hammer trademark, there are several stories interspersed and overlaid each, over each other and the reader never knows which one of those stories is going to explain what happened. Um, there's the three time periods and you've got several bodies and several crimes and there are some surprise twists at the end, as usual. And when I was reading it, I kept imagining you at your desk with a huge whiteboard with lines and arrows all over the place. And uh, But I think that you don't write like that do you yeah i think more look like looking in a bowl of spaghetti and trying to <laughs> unravel it no i i i write organically I, I start with ideas seeds of ideas 
and then I, I formulate the plot as I'm writing. I'm always trying to think ahead. It's just it, that keeps evolving while I continue to write. The storylines are all really clear, but, you know, complex and overlaying. How difficult was it for you to keep track of those threads? Look, quite difficult and, and quite a difficult task to keep the different plot lines and the different timelines clear and all of them moving along and so none of the characters drag or none of the stories drag on the others and so events and revelations in one timeline inform how the reader is reading the other timelines so there was a lot of backwards and forwards a lot of finessing a lot of polishing just to try and make it as seamless as possible kind of fun very challenging very rewarding to get it you know in a shape where it's working well did you write each of those storylines separately so in the book there's the three timelines but it's not you get the first third of the book second world war second third 1970s last third now you you keep swapping from one era to another with, with different chapters that's how i wrote the first draft but at some point i took each story aside and made sure that it was consistent within itself that the voice was consistent the tense that the, the flow of the story worked as a standalone story and then i put them back together and then i had to finesse them so the pacing between the different sections was working well so it was yeah quite a lot of work backwards and forwards yeah, yeah. Your other books read like uh, an incident happens and the reader is with the investigator from the start trying to work out what's going, bits and pieces are unfolding, new dramatic things happen, pieces of information. Feel, the reader feels as though they're learning that, learning what's going on at the same time as the investigator. This story felt like there was a story or stories being told and we had to work our way through it. Did you know how it was going to end? No. No, I, I don't. I had an idea of each of my stories, uh, each of my books, there's the crime elements. And as you say, there's often more than one crime, more than one perpetrator, etc. But the investigator is part of the story. They're not just an objective, hands-off investigator. They've got skin in the game, personal skin in the game. And in this story, it's very much about Nell's personal story. So she's a detective constable. And she's just been promoted into homicide. She comes down to the forest because a body has been discovered. She's reluctant to go for two reasons. One is purely professional. The body uh, is clearly many decades old. So she's really doubting that she can solve the crime. But the more important reason is because it's she grew up there. Her parents are still there and she has a strained relationship with them, particularly with her mother. And she knows if she's, you know, she goes down there, she's obliged through duty to go and see them. But where, where she really gets skin in the game, I guess, is when she begins to suspect that members of her own family might be implicated in these murders. So for her, it becomes much more than a professional challenge. It's, it's going to affect her personally and possibly profoundly. 
You said in an interview after your first novel, A Scrublands, that you had difficulty calling yourself an author and even more, it was even more difficult to call yourself a novelist. Why? Well, when I was writing um, Scrublands, I was doing it very much as a kind of hobby project. I'd written two non-fiction books and I couldn't, I felt I couldn't call myself a writer um, when they were published because I wasn't making my living out of writing books. I was doing all sorts of freelance journalism. And then when Scrublands, I got a very good book deal and was able to quit my job. But I still didn't feel like a writer because the book hadn't been published yet. And even after it was published, it sounded a bit, you know, on the strength of one book that, that I could be a writer, let alone, you know, an author or a novelist. But a, a year or two later, I was coming back on a flight from overseas and, you know, there's immigration card and you've got to write your occupation. And I started to write journalist almost automatically. And I thought, well, no, I'm not. I'm not. I am a writer. And, that is, and now... I absolutely embrace it. That is how I think of myself. You also said after your second book that you didn't suffer from the dreaded second novel syndrome, that you had the same joy in making things up, of creating new characters and new scenarios. Is the joy still there after five books? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've been writing a book a year and, okay, I'm a full-time writer and so many so many authors don't make enough money from writing so they've got to have a full-time job many have you know young kids whatever part of the reason i can write a book a year is because i write full-time but even so there's a lot of work you've probably got a sense of what i was saying with the tilt or the backwards and forwards with the complexity of it trying to get it you know really get it working as as good as possible so it is a lot of work and you wouldn't do it if you didn't love it and i do love it i just get I do get joy out of it. I do get joy sitting down and making stuff up. It's a slightly silly thing, I guess, if you if you say it like that. But it's really reward. After a year, there's a book, and it's something that I've created. So no, I, I I really do love it. So nice to be able to hold it when it comes out. It's not always easy being an author. It can be lonely work. It can be difficult when the story won't come together and when there's you know scary deadlines you know staring you in the face do you work hard at maintaining that joy i do sometimes it's more i need to remind myself just how fortunate i am so many people would love to be doing what i'm doing and one of the great things about being an author is it's flexible so i don't have to go to an office i don't have to sit in endless meetings i think i'm one of the most fortunate people in australia i've definitely got one of the best jobs and yeah it's important that i remind myself of that time to time so the last two books you've not stuck with the point of view of one character you've ivan was in the forefront in treasure and dirt and it's nell this time around what can we expect in the next book well i'm already started on the next one and um, ivan and nell have really grown on me so it'll be them again and i'm thinking uh, Ivan takes a real back seat in the tilt. He's not a point of view character. He's absent for part of the story. I think it's time we learn a bit more about Ivan. And do we have a title and a release date yet? Uh, well, the title, I think, is Book Six. So, <laughs> so I suspect that's going to change. Look, a release date we'd be aiming, I'd be aiming for October next year, October 2023. 
if I can meet my deadline, if all those threads that I've thrown up in the air actually come together. And the joy and the joy is still working. And the joy is working and that and you know, my fairy godmother is still looking over my shoulder. Hopefully October twenty twenty three. Thank you so much for giving us an insight into your new book, The Tilt. Our library readers can find The Tilt and Chris's other novels in print, ebook, and audio at the library. Thanks for listening to Your Summer Stories from Newcastle Libraries. Why not take a dip and a sip, then rate and review us wherever you listen. This has been a Newcastle Libraries Real Production. 